Praise the Lord. Amen. One of the things I'm always interested in when it's summertime is what people are reading. Because people put a lot of emphasis on summer reading. And uh, I, I read what some of you post on social media about the books you're reading. And I sometimes look them up because I like to read what other people are reading. Um, and most of the time during the summer I read fiction, but I haven't done any of that yet. I might get to it at some point, as if you're interested. I just thought I'd let you know that. But uh, One of my favorite things to read, though, is biographies or historical nonfiction. Richard Humphreys recommended the book Steal Away Home to me, which is about uh, Charles Spurgeon and the unlikely friendship he had with the freed slave turned Pastor Thomas Johnson. Excellent book. It was a great way for me to kick off my summer of reading. But one of my favorite biographies I've ever read is Eric Metaxas's book on Bonhoeffer. And the book is fascinating. It's very long, but it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, along with men like um, Martin Niemöller and other confessing Christians, lived inside of Nazi Germany where they opposed what was happening within the nation. And in 1940, Bonhoeffer published a book in Germany called The Prayer Book of the Bible. And the book is a call to Christians to recapture the importance of the Psalms. So I want you to think about that for a moment. How well do you think it went over in Nazi Germany for a Christian there to write a German book about a book in the Hebrew Bible? Well, they did not like it very much. In fact, they, were, uh, they uh, kind of fined him and uh, were doing certain things to oppose the fact that he was publishing this book. But they did retract the fine because he argued that the Psalms was the prayer book of Jesus. So therefore, it's valid for us to read. So three years later, he was arrested for his anti-Nazi uh, sentiments and then he was hanged in 1945. Well, this summer, we're studying through the book of the Psalms. The prayer book of Jesus is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. Tremper Longman has said, The book of Psalms has attracted more attention from Christians than any other Old Testament book. Its popularity dates back to the New Testament itself, where one finds frequent quotes and allusions to it. So even in the first century, the Christians are focused on the Psalms. And I wonder, why is it so popular for Christians? There's many books, 39 in the Old Testament. Why are we so drawn to the Psalms? John Calvin says this. He says, I have been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. In other words, Psalms addresses everything. It covers the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And so it's like a magnet pulling us as believers to it. The book is composed of 150 different compositions. They come from many different authors, written over a multitude of years. And so it's really hard to say what the historical context is for the entire book of the Psalms. Except, I think you can say that the book of Psalms uh, is made up of reflections and prayers born out of the real life experiences of God's people who are striving to appropriately 
face the realities of life. So in every situation, it's how am I to face it? A few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 139, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. Last week, we looked at Psalm 127, a wisdom psalm. And we're going to stay in that genre this morning. We're going to be in the first psalm, which is another psalm of wisdom. Psalm 1 actually acts as an introduction to the Psalter. So whoever compiled, whoever originally collected the Psalms into one volume, perhaps it was Ezra, as he put it there, intentionally placed David's Psalm, this Psalm, at the very beginning. Because it's the perfect preface to the Psalms, to the songbook or the prayer book of the Bible. So I'm going to read to you from Psalm 1. I'll read the whole Psalm, uh, verse 1 through 6. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you're walked in here this morning thinking, I'd love to memorize a psalm, just go ahead and do it right here, okay? In fact, if you have children, maybe it's a great assignment. They're looking for work during the summer. Give them Psalm 1. I think it'll serve them well. This first psalm proclaims the the blessed life, the blessed life, blooms along the path of the righteous. If you want to find the blessed life, it's the path of the righteous where it comes up. So what we're being encouraged to do in this psalm is to choose the fruitful and satisfying life that's found in following God. Well, how do we know how to find this life? Or how do we know what leads to this blessed and fulfilling life? This psalm has two main points that demonstrates where the fruitful and satisfying life comes from. In verses 1 to 3, David looks at the life God blesses, and then he contrasts that in verses 4 through 6 by looking at the life God judges. So we're going to begin there at the life God blesses in verse 1. The life that God blesses, is first of all a life that's separated from the world. I think that's what verse 1 is telling us. When David writes, how blessed is the man, I think that phrase or that word, blessed or blessed, kind of, um, it loses its meaning for us. We don't use that word a lot except in churchy situations, you know. God bless you or just, you know, we want to bless the Lord. And so what exactly does that mean? Well, we know to be blessed is to be happy. Happy is the man, is what he's saying here. But Chuck Swindoll says that doesn't even go far enough. He suggests that a better translation of this first verse might say, Oh, the happiness many times over for the man. Because it's that fulfilling. And where does this happiness come from that David is writing about? David is expressing that this joy comes from uncompromising purity of the righteous walk of God. If you want to find the blessed life, it's walking the straight and narrow. It's keeping to the ancient paths. So what we see illustrated in verse 1 is the progression of compromise. Spiritual erosion. 
This is what happens when we decide to stray and what it leads to. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk, nor stand, nor sit. I think it's a progression of what happens. Spiritual erosion. So to walk refers to kind of casual movement along the way, even kind of a going through the motions, maybe just associating for a moment just to kind of entertain or um, uh, just enjoy the wickedness mildly, just for entertainment's sake. So just walks with them, no big deal. So the man who just kind of casually goes alongside of the wicked. But when we walk with the wicked over a period of time, inevitably we eventually begin identifying with the wicked. I think that's what David is saying here. Compromise erodes our spiritual conviction. So what happens next? He walks and then he stands. In other words, he now takes a position with the sinners. He stands in the path of the sinners. No longer is he just passing by. No longer is it just a casual engagement. But this person has gone further. He is now standing in the path. In the way that the sinners walk. Haven't you seen this before? You can think of people who just entertain for a moment. And then eventually they end up standing in the path of the sinners. This casual walk with the wicked leads to sinful living. Paul writes about this in his church, in the, to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Maybe your parents said that to you too, <laughs> to remind you. Well, it's biblical. Bad company corrupts good morals. So you're walking with the wicked leads to standing with sinners, which gives way to sitting with the scoffers. So this is where one has now settled down and determined, this is where I'm going to set up my, my habitat, my dwelling place, is with the scoffers. The scoffer is the one who continually makes light of the sacred. And so now the walking leads to standing and now leads to sitting. So you get the idea here. David is illustrating for us the progression of compromise in our life. People are so apt to take this just mildly that leads to unbelievable outcomes. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Screwtape Letters. It tells, it's, it's a collection of letters, correspondence between two demons. Um, Screwtape, who is the experienced, seasoned demon who's writing to his nephew Wormwood, who is uh, a kind of an aspiring tempter. And so he's writing to him and he's saying, I know you're trying to tempt him to do all these great and wicked things, but the truth is, even small things will work. You distract him and all of a sudden just reading the newspaper kind of pulls him off track. Or playing cards all of a sudden is a distraction from the things of God. And so in chapter 12, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And of course, he's speaking of God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. He says murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Listen, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, 
without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's the way of the wicked. A casual walk leads to a downward spiral. So David says, Oh, the happiness many times over for the man who does not even casually go through the motions or imitate the plan of life of those who live in ungodliness. So the one who resists temptation towards spiritual compromise, that's the blessed man. So how does one resist? Well, I think that's what verse 2 shows us. It shows that the life God blesses is the one that's saturated with the word. He says, instead of walking, standing, or sitting with the soft scoffers, the wicked, the sinful, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Delight is whenever all of a sudden you find satisfaction there. Immense, some, find something immensely interesting, very relevant. And so blesses the man who finds the scriptures immensely interesting, very relevant. The way and the word of the Lord brings joy. It brings satisfaction. His delight is not in just wickedness. It's not in temporary pleasures only. He doesn't find his delight in um, uh, all the temporary pleasures of this world, like whatever it may be, music, art, um, maybe uh, in work or in politics or in watching the news or in working a puzzle or in um, phone calls whatever it might be his delights in the law of the Lord that's what's most satisfying to him now many take that to mean the law books of the Bible so his delight is in the Torah the first five books of the Bible but I think David is referring to these commandments with Israel that are included there in those first five books but I think it expands to include the life-giving guidance that God provides throughout Scripture. In fact, I contend that David here in Psalm 1 is even referring to the Psalms. Blessed is the man who finds his delight in reading and depending on the life-giving guidance that's found here in the book of the Psalms, who seeks to find guidance here and establishes a life of faith rooted in this book. And he says, blessed is the man, or he says here, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law he meditates day and night so to meditate is different from just reading right when we meditate on we respond to it we ponder it we consider it, we reflect on the scriptures and the blessed man is the one who reflects on God's word he says day and night in other words all day long wakes up thinking about it it comes up in interactions and conversations or a thought something that draws their attention towards it well what's the result of delighting and meditating on the Word of God. Verse 3 shows that the result is being like a tree. The life God blesses is the one situated by waters. One thing I'm really drawn to in this psalm is that he doesn't say, he will be, and then, I mean, excuse me, he will do, and then describe all these things that we will do as this godly man. But he says he will be like a tree. In other words, he will be transformed. He will become something different. The old has come, the new has come. It's not just about all the things I've done, but blessed is the man who does these things, for he will be like a tree. In this case, he offers the simile of the tree. That's the blessing. That's the happiness that's found with living the godly life, is you can be like a tree. You thought, I never thought I wanted to be like a tree, Wes. 
So why in the world is this something I should aspire to? Or what kind of tree are we talking about, Wes? I like some trees, there are others. Are we talking Bradford pear? Not my favorite, you know. Are we talking palmetta, you know. What kind of tree? He says this tree that is firmly planted. That's the first thing. That means fortified. It means stable, deeply rooted, a strong tree. This firmly planted tree is a tree that yields fruit. It's productive. So there's this natural flow of life in the tree so that fruit is growing on the branches in season. Maybe not all year long, but when it's supposed to, the fruit's coming out, right? So Jesus speaks of this. He says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And this fruit comes in the form of this spiritual fruit we're familiar with by walking in the Spirit. The fruit of love, of joy, peace, patience, kindness, of goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It shows up in conversations. We get frustrated. It starts pouring out. We have to deal with a long period of waiting and all of a sudden the fruit shows up. But not only that, I think it's also fruit that means productivity in the kingdom of God. Bearing the fruit of making disciples. That's what he's called us to. Well, do you know what the secret to fruit is? Roots. It's not in the leaves. We're all attracted to the leaves. It's in the roots. Warren Wiersbe says, too many Christians are concerned with their leaves rather than their roots. Leaves may look good. Roots are rarely seen. The leaves may impress, but the root system produces the fruit. So he says it's a tree that's deeply rooted. He says it's a tree that does not wither. In other words, it perseveres. We've experienced some crazy storms over the last couple of days. I'm sure you all remember that. Uh, on Thursday, we had some downed trees just a couple blocks from here. I think a big tree toppled over on a truck, and the man who was in the truck miraculously survived that. And when I hear about these trees that get blown over in storms, I think, why don't they all blow over? I mean, they recorded a gust of wind at 79 miles per hour in Columbia on Thursday. And you think, how in the world are they not all blowing over? The blessing found in the Christian life is perseverance. Following Jesus will lead through difficult places. This morning in my devotion, I read Psalm 42, where it says, Deep calls to deep, the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. God leads us through storms. He leads us in trials, but he sustains us there. Because blessed is the man who does all these things because he will persevere in it. It may bring about, following Jesus will bring about suffering. It will bring about uncomfortability. It will come with disappointment. It will come with not getting your way. But the man who delights and meditates in the law of the Lord will be like a tree that is planted, that is productive and perseveres. The delighting person has strength and stability when the storms of life come. And then he writes, he is like a tree that prospers. Planted, productive, perseveres, and prospers. To prosper does not mean that my bank account's always full. It doesn't mean that I have all the fame I desire. It does not mean that I have uh, success unending or longevity. To, to uh, prosper means I fulfill what God has intended for me. I meet the purpose of my life. But let's go back. He says he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. 
Now, God has placed deep hidden springs for life. I'm sure that there are many times in your life you've had to draw from those deep strings. But the one who delights in the law of the Lord has a visible stream of water that's very close because it's the word of God. So I would argue that the life God blesses is the life firmly planted in the truth of God's word. Jesus tells the story of two men who choose different paths when it comes to um, applying hearing and applying the word of the Lord to their lives. In Matthew 7, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Notice the wise man doesn't get get an escape from the storms. He still faces storms. He faces rains. Yesterday morning, I, I heard this sound I'd never heard before. And it was the rain not just coming down but knocking on my door. It was, it was raining at such an angle. I said, what's the racket? And it was the rain. Well, the wise man faces rain. He faces floods and winds. The storms of life come in all shapes, all forms, many different fashions. It might be in a health issue that you have. Or it might be in a life issue for a loved one. It might come in a business transaction that fails. It might come by lies and deceit that people form against you or hurl at you. The wise man faced a storm, but his house stood strong. Why? He built on the rock. He heard the word and he applied it. Verse uh, 26 and 27, it says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell And great was its fall. The difference was not in hearing the word of the Lord. Did you notice the wise man heard the word of the Lord? The foolish man heard the word of the Lord. It's just the wise man applied it. Many of you hear the word of the Lord very often. You hear it at church. You hear it in Sunday school, in Bible study, a small group you might be a part of. Maybe you uh, listen to certain music that's got the word of the Lord to pour into your life. You might listen to a sermon or a podcast or read a book. So you hear the word of the Lord. The difference is not that the wise man heard it. It's that he acted on it. The foolish man heard it, yet he didn't act. So to be firmly planted in the word of God, you must hear it. I cannot encourage you enough to form regular habits of scripture intake. To have personal time in this word. It's the stream of water. This is how you bear fruit. This is how you survive the storms of life. But I want to remind you that following the Lord is about applying the truths of God's word. Don't just be hearers, but be doers of the word. So Jesus teaches us to repent. So do you put that into practice in your life? Do you have habits of confession and repentance in your life? He commands us not to lust. We live in a sexually saturated culture. So I know it's, temp, uh, it's difficult to obey God's commandment. He commands it. Do you apply it in your life? He tells us to keep our word. He tells us to go the second mile. He tells us to love our enemies. Are you applying that in your life? He teaches us to, re, uh, to repent. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Is that a practice of yours? He says to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is that flowing out of your life? Jesus commands in Matthew 9 that we pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out workers. 
do you notice the people in our world who need Jesus? Are you concerned for them? Are you saying, God, send out workers? Because that's what he commands us to do. He reiterates that we are to honor our parents, that we are to honor marriage. We're to forgive those who do us wrong. We are to love God, love our neighbors, and we're to make disciples. Are you obeying, are you applying God's commands in your life? So the blessed life comes from a life built on the word of God. David next contrasts this blessed life with the life God judges. He says in verse 4, the wicked are not so. This means the wicked don't have the blessing that's described in the first few verses. They don't have that happiness there. They're not delighting and meditating on the word. They're not like the tree. They're not fruitful. They don't prosper. They don't persevere. Instead, he says, they are like chaff. Well, chaff is that worthless part of the wheat. And it's beaten loose from the grain. And in the winnowing process, the chaff is thrown up into the breeze and it's blown away. I cannot think of a better contrast to the firmly planted tree. Chaff serves no good purpose. Now, wisdom psalms very often contain this two-way motif. Live this way or live that way. Well, in this second part of the psalm, David describes this alternative way, which is the way of the wicked. In verse 5, he says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The idea is the one who lives at cross-purposes with God's precepts will face judgment. And they may think they'll face God, shake their fist at him. But David says they will not even be able to remain upright before the Lord of hosts. So most people live as if there's no judgment. But Jesus himself said in John 5, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So judgment is coming. Death will not be able to keep someone from facing God in judgment. Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This implies more than just uh, he's familiar with it or he has an understanding of it. But the verse implies that God plans the way of the righteous. He marks it out. His attention is on his children. He sustains those who follow him. But the way of the wicked, he writes, will perish. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. There are two ways to live. There are those who walk the narrow way and go through the narrow gate. There are those who walk the broad way and go through the wide gate. One life leads to life. One leads to destruction. While it may be very unpopular for me to say, I believe this Psalm 1 is clear. God will judge. I want to share with you plainly how the scriptures describe this judgment. John tells us about it in Revelation 20. He says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Have you ever done something and then got 
distracted or uh, disinterested so much you never return to finish the project? Not so with God. I know that the passing of time and the allure of the things that are before your eyes make you think he will not return. He will not judge. He will not complete what he has begun. But the scriptures declare God will judge. Well, how's he going to judge? I think there's two routes to judgment here. The first route is according to man's deeds. Revelation 20 says the books will be opened. Those are the books of, that describe the actions and attitudes and activities of our lives. So some will stand before God based on their deeds. And they will hope that they have done enough to achieve eternal life. They will try to weigh out against the evil things that maybe were thoughts that never acted on and say, God, based on my deeds, I am can I be declared righteous and welcomed in? But Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, not even one. That means nobody will stand there and say, based on my deeds, based on my life, God, you owe me. God, I've earned eternal life. Not the holiest man you can think of, not the most humble person you've ever met will do that. There's not even one. So those who stand before God based on their own merits will perish. The second route of judgment is according to the sufficiency of the blood of the Lamb. In other words, is Jesus' death good enough to cover my sins, to clothe me in righteousness? Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ... You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those who come to God by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb, saying only He is enough to pay my pardon, will find eternal life with God. So for the believer who's judged based on the sufficiency of the blood of the Lamb, what benefit is there to living a godly life? What do we get from that if we're not earning heaven? The scriptures are clear that beyond the question of salvation and eternal life, those who are in Christ will be judged by the life they live. They will not be judged for their sins. Those are covered by Jesus' blood. But they will be judged for the things they could have done, but they didn't do. The righteous deeds they did not act on. Those sins of omission. The idea is that the one to whom much has been given, much is required. It's a judgment of rewards. He will be rewarded for a faithful life for perseverance every believer will taste of eternal life but not everybody will have the same experience because there's blessing in store for those who persevere in righteous living how happy many times over is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked does not stand in the path of the sinners does not sit in the seat of the mockers for the one today trying to live a life good enough you are to be reminded that living good enough is never going to be enough you need Christ's blood and righteousness. Psalm 1 proclaims that the blessed life blooms along the path of the righteous. So choose this day the fruitful and satisfying life that's found in following God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we come in here recognizing we're weak but knowing that you are strong. So God, we pray even now that you would speak to our hearts and we would be faithful to respond. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have an invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, perhaps it's about salvation, baptism, joining the church, now's the moment for you to respond. We'd love to have you. I'd love to speak with you. I'll be down front. So I'm going to invite you to stand. As you stand, our choir will sing. You respond.
this morning we have um, some new members to introduce to the congregation and welcome into the fellowship. So, Bob, as soon as you're ready, why don't you go ahead and introduce us? They'll have to start walking this way so you can get their Yeah, names. I had to stop for <laughs> lunch. To... Joshua and Jessica Jordan are joining us. <clears throat> Pardon me. They have three children who are downstairs. Uh, they're in the Bible survey class. They're both in the choir, but they got special forgiveness today because they couldn't get from the choir down to here. Deborah McClellan uh, is in the Renaissance class, and she is still looking for ministry uh, interests. So we're trucking over there. Very good. And Andrew and Elizabeth Pilotti are here, and they have two children down in the uh, Children's Center. They're in the Growing in Faith class. Uh, he's interested in children's ministry, as is she, and he's interested in real men, and she in first women. And Casey and Sarah McMillan, and here we go. Daniel, Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, and Mar oh, Mary's downstairs. Um, they're in the Growing in Faith class, and she obviously is in the choir. Uh, they're both interested in children's ministry, he and Awana, and real men, and she in uh, First Women's as well as choir. Okay. Uh, Joe uh, Crane is here, and his wife, Maria, is upstairs in the choir. They're in the Bible survey class. Like I said, they're both in the choir, and they're interested in international ministries. All right, I think we're good. Yeah. So let's welcome them to the Fellowship First Baptist. <laughs> 